A reading from 1 Corinthians. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family, and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, following, falling, I will never eat meat, so that, I may, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. These, uh, these are the words of St. Paul, speaking in the uh, letter to the Corinthians. If they sound somewhat familiar, it's because Socrates is uh, um, rumored to have said very much the exact same thing. Which is, when I was young, I thought I knew a lot. And when I was middle-aged, I thought I knew a few things. And now that I'm older, I realize I don't know anything. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. Now, I'm understandably a little nervous about speaking about this in an academic community. He's sort of, he's maybe not trashing knowledge, but he's not, he's subordinating it to love. And uh, presenting yet another one of these interesting juxtapositions, the contrast between not knowledge and ignorance, or love and indifference, or love and hate, Paul is talking about knowledge versus love, not two things we would naturally think of as being opposed to one another. Now, the purpose of this sermon would be just to sort of figure out why and what that difference might have to say to us today in our lives. So what is Paul saying about knowledge? The first thing he's saying is that it's partial. It is by definition partial. It is incomplete. We don't know everything and we can't know everything. There are so many things that maybe we thought we knew for sure that turned out not to be true. Now, the most obvious example is Pluto, right? I mean, we thought it was a planet. Uh, it's been told it's a planet, you know. Um, it's just a hunk of rock. <laughs> you can't wish upon it anymore. Not that, I don't know if people were really wishing upon Pluto, but um, there you have it. More uh, sort of personally speaking, when I was 18, I... Uh, prided myself on my taste in music and what I knew 
to be true was that Elvis Presley was a joke, a kitschy uh, uh, part of American music that we would rather forget. And now that I'm 32, I realize he is the one true king of rock and roll. And <laughs> there's no question about it from the day he was born to the day he died. I am absolutely obsessed with Elvis Presley, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> so what have you been wrong about so far in your life? Hopefully it's something as innocuous as that, and not something terribly serious. But of course, knowledge is not just partial in terms of the solar system or our knowledge of the world or our knowledge of ourselves. It's also our knowledge of another person. That can be partial. You know, how many times have you heard the story, they were married for 40 years, and then all of a sudden he's such and such, and then they got divorced. I thought I knew him. But then he did, he, she decided to... Uh, run off to Puerto Rico. And in fact, you know, this is, it sounds far-fetched, but I've got a friend. They were married for 10 years. Everyone knew these people. She, she, I went to college with her, and he was a wonderful guy that we'd all sort of accepted. And then 10 years, the middle of the night, he gets up and leaves. Never comes back. There were obviously some things we didn't know. Our knowledge was partial. Our view was incomplete. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, is what St. Paul says. And it's true. And it is true with ourselves. Maybe you were a person that thought, you know, I want to do this with my life. And it's turned out that you've done this with your life. And uh, what you thought would bring you joy has not. Or what you thought would never bring you happiness has. You never know. Knowledge is, is partial. By definition. So stick, stay away from people that are too certain. <laughs> um, but secondly, <laughs> irony, um, <laughs> knowledge puffs up. He says, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. What does that mean? Well, puffs up. Up is, it elevates people. Knowledge is used as a vehicle of self-righteousness. Power. Isn't that what Mr. Jefferson says? Knowledge is power. Information is power. Pretty sure that's what, you know, Cobra Commander said. Um, but self-righteousness. Paul here was speaking to a church that was using its sort of knowledge of God not in, in an unloving way towards those people around it. I mean, go figure. Some religious people were using their knowledge about God in a sort of an antagonistic, aggressive way. I mean, that's never happened. This is very common. It's too common. But that when knowledge is detached from love, it is used to puff up, to put one person over another. Because it, it sets up a right and a wrong, or a win and a lose. And as a result, it, it never ends. You, know, you can never know enough. You're, you know, Every academic person, I've, I've now been in this academic setting for a few years, and when people get, get honest, it turns out that every academic person, especially graduate students, are all afraid that uh, someone's going to find out that they're a complete fraud. <laughs> they do not belong here. They got in on it. It's a joke. If you found out that I went to a small Bible college uh, in Tennessee, and now I'm here, I fooled someone to get here. Now, um, maybe that's not you, but I actually, after I preached this sermon in the morning, 
two sort of professors in their 60s came up to me and told me that they still have recurring nightmares that someone is going to find out that they didn't take a second semester of physics their undergraduate year. I mean, this is not like, I'm not whistling Dixie. Um, if someone knew the whole truth about us, they wouldn't have hired us. They, we'd get fired. If someone knew the whole truth about us, they'd leave in the middle of the night. And of course, these evasions end up causing more misery than they're worth. So as much as we enjoy knowing, we hide from being known. I can think of three great television shows that are on right now. Not Sunday nights, but um, actually. Uh, that are all about people elaborately hiding what's really going on in their lives. And of course, the evasions tend to create more dysfunction than, than whatever the act is itself. And that's where the, the crux of the drama. But this is not just a sort of a specific phenomenon. It's universal. You know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week that said that um, the, number, the, the new marriage killer is not adultery or financial hardship. The new marriage killer is nagging. What is nagging? It's placing information above love. If you, they, 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 they talk about a man who uh, bites into a sandwich uh, for lunch, and between the uh, cheese and the meat, there's a note that says, Home Depot, 730 aisle 10. <laughs> They're remodeling their house, and his wife did not want him to forget. Now, we laugh, but he didn't find it very funny. He felt condescended to, and unloved, and violated, and uh, just annoyed. But of course, the, the woman in question only did this because she felt that she wasn't being listened to or heard or cared for. Knowledge detached from love, is, it can be very detrimental. Uh, there's a, there was also an article in Psychology Today where a psych psychotherapist who uh, has clients who are mainly CEOs and politicians said that almost all of her clientele suffer from something called imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is a state of mind marked by the feeling that you're not supposed to have the type of authority or competence that you actually have, that you don't deserve it, that you didn't quite earn it. You feel like you're fooling others and that someday they'll get wise and expose you. It's a feeling that you've somehow snuck into a club in which you're not a legitimate member. The club might be the club of real leaders or experts or people who know what they're doing. In other words, if you really knew me, there is no way you would allow me up in a pulpit. We've <laughs> got a lot of laughs this morning. Because um, once you have full knowledge, why do we fear being known? Once, once all the knowledge is there, even if it's, we, we say it's partial, we believe that if someone really is to know us, they're really to have all the facts, then they can make a judgment that would stick. And we don't want a judgment that would stick because we all know where the, the verdict would end. George Herbert, the famous Anglican poet and priest uh, from the 17th century, he said, Surely, if each one saw another's heart, there would be no commerce, no sale or bargain pass. All would disperse and live apart. Meaning if someone were miraculously to gain complete knowledge of you or me, which is very scary for a lot of us, you would, we, would, we would all live apart. We would disperse. We would, want, we would all be alienated from one another. It would kill love. Okay, but puffing up, what else does puffing up do? It's not just up, it's puffing. Puffing, air, hollowness. 
I mean, knowledge on its own, for its own sake, it, it does not actually um, have much function other than detrimental. Now, that's a, I know that that's a, that's a, uh, a controversial thing to say, but let me tell you what I mean. Um, maybe you've been in a relationship where someone thinks, maybe it's a nagging relationship where they think if they just tell you what's wrong with you and remind you when you're doing it, that you will stop doing it. That life is a matter of just figuring out the right information and then you can act. Like, uh, you know, you just regress like crazy every time we go and visit your parents and you act like a little child and it's alienating and I feel alone and I want to have nothing to do with you. Stop. That does not work. It's never worked and never will work. But it, it also applies to chewing with your mouth open or anything like that. Information is never enough to change a person. Never. And in fact, it's not even enough to It's self-knowledge. As much as I am a proponent of good psychotherapy, you should all go into therapy soon. <laughs> to find out why you do the things that you do. Because you... You might be somewhat aware of them, but there's probably all sorts of dysfunctions in your life that you're not aware of. But uh, I was sort of struck by a book that came out recently by Daniel Kahneman, who's a social psychologist who is a Nobel Prize winning man. He's not sort of small potatoes. This is a big deal. He wrote a book called um, Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, he says that self-knowledge turns out to be surprisingly useless. Even when we know why we stumble, we still find a way to fall. Teaching people about the hazards of multitasking doesn't lead to less texting in the car. Learning about the weakness of the will doesn't increase the success of diets. Knowing that most people are overconfident about the future doesn't make us more realistic about our investments. The problem is not that we're stupid. It's that we're stubborn. And then Kahneman, in this review... This article went on to admit that his decades of groundbreaking Nobel Prize winning research had failed to significantly improve his own mental performance. This is him speaking. My intuitive thinking is just as prone to overconfidence, extreme predictions, and poor planning as it was before I made a study of these issues. Oh, great. You know, this, if this guy by knowing, learning about himself cannot affect any kind of change, what, what hope do I have? What Kahneman knows is what, 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 what St. Paul talked about and what Jesus understood is that you and I are not rational beings. We're not, we're not acting based on the best information. We are emotional creatures. Feeling, we dress up our feelings in all sorts of reasons and language. But we are, we, we, are, we are emotional beings. The heart trumps the head every time. Just try talking someone into being in love with you. It doesn't work. So Paul is right to subordinate knowledge to love. He says later on in the same letter, he says, If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but do not have love, I am nothing. That's a heavy statement. I am nothing. Not just I, 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 you know, I could use something. No, I have nothing. So knowledge and love, these are, these, these, love is sort of above, knowledge is below, but they're intimately connected. Because you can know someone without loving them, but you cannot love someone without knowing them. I'll say that again. You can know someone without loving them, but you cannot love someone without knowing them. Jonathan Franzen, 
the great American novelist. He put it this way. He said, to love a specific person and to identify with his or her struggles and joys as if they were your own, which is what we all want, you have to surrender some part of yourself. The big risk here, of course, is rejection. We can all handle being disliked now and then because there's such an infinitely <clears throat> big pool of potential likers. He's using the Facebook language. Uh, but to expose your whole self, not just the likable surface, and to have it rejected can be catastrophically painful. The prospect of pain generally, the pain of loss, of breakup, of death, is what makes it so tempting to avoid love and stay safely in the world of liking. So love involves knowing someone and not using that knowledge against them. So it, it, you can't be in Downton Abbey, in other words, uh, because that's what all Victorian dramas are about. You find out some secret, and then you decide either to tell it or not to tell it, right? I mean, and, and that's the drama. Um, gosh, the older people laughed at that one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> love does require withholding judgment. It involves this understanding of knowledge being partial. Jesus did not use his knowledge of people against them. Read the, his interaction with the woman at the well. The woman who had five husbands and was the man she was living with was not one of them. He decided not to use that knowledge. When was the last time someone knew something harmful about you and decided not to use it? What's that like? When did you decide not to gossip about some piece of juicy knowledge that you had? It's rare. It's very rare. And when it happens, you take note. So, what is the good news here? The good news is that you and I are not qualified to make judgments. We should get out of the judgment game as soon as possible. That's what one theologian says. And you know what? That, that's good news. Because you will never have the information at hand to be able to make a, an actual judge fully uh, you know, final judgment on anything. You just won't. So then you're released from having to go through life figuring out how to judge everyone, how to evaluate them, place them in a box. You can go through your life being surprised, even by the person that you've spent 30 years with. You still don't know that person completely. You can love them. You are freed from the illusion that if you only knew a little bit more, then things would be better. Even theologically, if you only understood, you had the right theology, then think life would be better. You would understand your salvation and you would feel it more intensely. But we are not saved by our theology. We are not saved by information. The gospel tells us that there is something more important than knowing. And it is being known. That there is something more important than loving, and it is being loved. We are not told to go out there and learn more things, and love more well. <laughs> we are told that in spite of our lack of knowledge, God knows us. And in spite of our lack of ability to love it, it, it fully, God loves us. The relational trumps the intellectual question, is it better to be right or to be kind, receives its final answer, it is better to be kind. 
at least according to the New Testament. Love builds up. A friend of mine explained it this way, and I think it's a very vivid uh, bit of uh, description. He said, imagine if I locked my dog and my wife in the trunk of my car. After an hour, only one of them would be glad to see me. The dog's love is unconditional, but it's unknowing love. It somehow feels a little cheaper. Though, I mean, obviously, unconditional love of a dog, people love that. Who wouldn't want that? But it, it, it's unknowing love. It doesn't really know what, that you've locked, you had been the one who locked them in. He lives moment to moment. The wife's love is probably a little bit more conditional. Uh, she would not be thrilled about having been locked in the trunk. And she, but, but her love, her, her feelings are based on knowledge. And oftentimes we think that God is either like the dog who loves unconditionally, but he, the only way he could possibly love us unconditionally is by not actually knowing us. Or we think that God is like the wife who, who knows what we've done, knows who we are, and therefore there's no way they could love us. <coughs> but the miracle of the gospel is that God is both the dog and the wife. God's love is the love that knows and still loves. So where are you hiding? Where are you puffing yourself up with knowledge? Where are you putting faith in knowledge rather than the one who knows? The good news of the gospel is that knowledge of God is not a set of information or facts. The knowledge of God is a person, Christ Jesus himself, and he is not partial. He is not partial in his knowledge of you, and he is not partial in his love of you. It is complete, and we know this because he surrendered himself. He risked himself. He allowed himself to be rejected, to be killed, so that you and I might be redeemed. The same Anglican poet George Herbert wrote a poem about Jesus where he captures it perfectly. Bear with the antiquated language. It's it's beautiful. Love bade me welcome, and yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin, But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? He bore the blame. 